Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to You with Jesus. And we come to You in the power of the Holy Spirit. We are in awe of You, of Your glory. May we hear You this morning. May we hear Your words loudly. May we see You vividly. May our hearts be rekindled within us that we might truly love You and show You to the world. And so may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in Your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So here we are, the first Sunday of Epiphany. And I think it's fitting for me to just say thank you to so many of you uh, in the congregation, in the pews, maybe even not here, maybe listening online. But thank you, because you guys are a significant part of the mission of this church. In Epiphany, we're reminded of the mission of God, of the light of Christ that is going forth. And there's so many of you that are working and serving in this church, and I just want to say thank you. And I wish we had the time to, to bring each of you up front um, and to honor you as, as you deserve. Uh, there's so many of you that are working behind the scenes. And so thank you. Thank you. We are reminded, certainly, in Epiphany, that we have a purpose and a meaning to go forth and to share the love of Christ to the world. And we see this in our Gospel reading this morning. And so I'd invite you to turn with me to the Gospel passage. We're looking at the Gospel of Matthew. The Evangelist Matthew has been preparing for this significant event that we're about to look at. Like John, the evangelist of the fourth gospel, who emphasizes the deity of Christ, Matthew emphasizes the messianic kingship of Christ. Matthew is writing for a Hebrew audience, and he does so in Jewish fashion. He unveils the long-awaited messianic king. He begins the gospel by detailing the ancestry to show that he is in fact the king Messiah. Following the ancestry emphasis, he describes the miraculous arrival. The arrival of this king who fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah in 7.14 by being conceived of the Holy Spirit and a virgin. Then in the first 12 verses of the second chapter, Matthew describes the universal adoration of the king represented by the wise men traveling afar to worship him. And then in verses 13 to 23 of the second chapter, we read of the attestation of the king, showing that the word of man and the word of the Lord give witness to who he is, the true king. In chapter 3, Matthew describes the announcement of the king in verses 1 to 12, through the one who was to prepare the way for the Messiah, John the Baptist. And now we find ourselves in verses 13 to 17, where we read of the anointing of the king. 
as we witness this significant event for which the evangelist has been building up to. You see, Matthew shows that this is a significantly profound event for which the Almighty has been orchestrating, and he does this by detailing the ancestry, the arrival, the adoration, the attestation, the announcement, and the anointing of the king. Thirty years the king has been preparing to initiate his reign. As we read these words, we sense that this is the critical coordinate moment. As my theology professor would say, the longitudinal and the latitudinal lines meet. This is the fullness of time, the critical coordinate moment, and we see this as this event initiates the messianic ministry. Thirty years the king has been preparing to initiate this reign. Christ has nearly been silent up until this point. But now we see and we hear him most vividly and loudly. We see him for who he is. This is not only a public anointing of Jesus that equips and enables him to fulfill righteousness, but it is a public announcement of who he is. A profound public announcement of the God who saves. So on this first Sunday of Epiphany, I pray that we will vividly and loudly see and hear the good news of this one for whom the Heavenly Father is well pleased. I pray this so that we might show it, that we might tell it, that we might live on mission as we are reminded to do in this Epiphany season. And so what are the lessons to be learned from our gospel reading? What are the lessons to be learned that will strengthen our faith and assure our hearts that will help us to walk obediently, trusting in this one who fulfills all righteousness and garners the pleasure of the Father? If you wish to receive the pleasure of the Father, if you hope that the Father, if you wish, if you desire to have the Father be pleased with you, then listen up. Listen to these lessons that we ought to learn from this passage. There's many, but I will give only three just because of time. There is much going on in these, these few verses that we will be looking at. The first thing that we ought to notice is the timeliness the timeliness and the appearance of Christ. Look at verse 13. We read, Then, signifying time, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. It doesn't sound like much, but there's great meaning and significance in this first verse. We read of Words and phrases that denote a sense of time and meaning and purpose. There's much that we do not know. It doesn't describe so many details, but what we do know is that it was a particular time. It was a significant historical event. 
It was before John the Baptist had been imprisoned. It was when he had been baptizing in the Jordan River. This was the fullness of time. This was the significant event. This was the critical coordinate moment for when the Messiah is to initiate his ministry. But not only was this at a particular time that Matthew had been leading up to, it was a particular time that Christ had been preparing for and waiting for. Christ had waited 30 years. He had remained silent, yet diligently maturing for this day where he would commence his ministry. He had traveled a great distance from Galilee to Jordan, possibly as much as 70 miles. Why? Because of a particular purpose, a glorious purpose. His purpose was to be baptized by John, we are told. Christ had reason to come this long way and to be baptized. This event was a watershed moment. It was the moment from when God moves from being silent to speaking and calling things into existence. So we should not turn a blind eye to this significant and profound event. We should notice the language that denotes time and initiation and purpose. The word then denotes the timeliness of this messianic event. The word came is in the third person singular, present passive indicative, tense signifying Christ's appearance, Christ's coming, suggests initiation of his messianic ministry. And notice the purpose. We are told that so that he might be baptized, to be baptized by John the Baptist. See, not one of the Gospels omit this event. It is of great significance and meaning. It provides insight and clarity and inspiration that every Christian must have. And so we should listen. We should listen. Behold. Later in verses 16 and 17, we hear these words, Behold. You know what those words mean, or that word means, behold. It's the word that we find in Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 and 23, at Joseph's annunciation in the dream where the angel of the Lord speaks to him. We see two times this word showing up, behold. We also see it in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, which we heard on Friday on the Feast of Epiphany. The wise men who traveled from afar, they hear this word, behold. And in verses 16 and 17, we hear this word, behold. Two times. Matthew is saying, listen up, pay attention. Listen to what I'm about to tell you and to show you. Behold. So we would do well to listen to hear the gospel, that we might apply this good news to our life. All those practical details of our lives can be filled with meaning and purpose. If we only hear and listen and see and savor and show the glorious good news of Christ. The second thing that we ought to notice is that 
It signifies the significance and the uniqueness of Christ in his baptism. The significance and the uniqueness of Christ in his baptism. Now look at verses 14 and 15. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. You see, John the Baptist did not want to baptize Jesus. He sought to prevent it. He had refused to baptize the Pharisees earlier in verses 7 to 10. And now he does all he can to not baptize Christ. He refused to baptize the Pharisees because they were unrepentant sinners. He sought not to baptize Christ because he himself was a repentant sinner. Here we find John the Baptist giving witness to Christ's sinless nature. We are told in Article 15, one of the statements of our faith in the Anglican tradition, we are told this doctrine of Christ alone without sin. And here we see John the Baptist giving witness of the sinless nature of Christ. We see the significance and the uniqueness of Christ. Notice John the Baptist's humble and knowledgeable response in verse 14. After learning of Christ's intent, he knew who he was and he knew who he was himself. And it's here that we find this significance and the uniqueness of Christ and his baptism. John offered a baptism of repentance, which implied that those who were baptized by John were sinners. But Christ was not one of these. John the Baptist clearly acknowledges this. So why did Christ come to be baptized by John? He provides for us an answer in verse 15. He came not because he was a sinner, and not because he was without the Holy Spirit. No, he came, what does he say? To fulfill all righteousness. Christ acknowledges God's claim on his life. He knew his purpose. He knew his mission. He answered his call and he invited John the Baptist to be part of it. Has God claimed us this epiphany? Are we claimed by God? Are we living in purpose and on mission? Do we know why we wake up each day and do our tasks and our duties? Are you going to work for a paycheck? Are you going to work to share the light of Christ? But here also, we not only learn how we must be claimed by God, but we also learn of the character of the Lord here. As he invites John the Baptist to participate in this glorious event, It is not that John appeases the wrath of God. It's not that John unites the Godhead with God's elect. He has no business in that. He 
has no ability to do that. No, it's Christ alone, Him who is without sin, who can only do that. What we learn, however, is that John the Baptist is not unaffected. Rather, Christ invites him to join him in fulfilling all righteousness. You see, if the mission of Christ be true, then we must be affected. We must be moved. We must be allured by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's silly to presume that people are on their way to heaven without ever being affected by Christ. So if we wish to know our destination then we must see and savor and show it. We must live on purpose and with meaning. We must be gospel people. Yes, we must submit to his plan. We must hear his call. We must participate in him who is the solid truth and is our great joy. Like John the Baptist, we are invited to be a part of God's supreme mission of recreating and redeeming His beloved. Just as Christ acknowledged God's claim on his life by traveling afar to be baptized by John the Baptist, so must we acknowledge the claim of God upon our lives by yielding to him despite our reservation. Yes, like John, we must humble ourselves. We must know who he is. We must know that He is God in the flesh, the God who saves. And the final thing that we should notice is that we are given a glorious description or portrait of Christ's baptism. We learn of the glory of Christ in His baptism, not just the significance and the uniqueness, but we learn of the glory of it. Look at verses 16 to 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We are told that after Christ had been dipped into the water, that he immediately went up from the water. Is it not hard to see the symbolism of the full and the profound meaning of this baptism and the work and the reward of Christ? It's not hard to see this, is it? It's filled with meaning and layers of profundity. By this baptism, Christ shows a sign and sacrament in Jordan. And by this baptism, Christ foretells of how he is to taste of the wrath of God. Do you see how these two paradoxically mirror each other? One shows how Christ would absorb the wrath of God. And the other shows how he is equipped with the Spirit to accomplish salvation. You see, through Christ's baptism, we see the profound meaning of Christ's atoning work. The wrath of God was poured out upon Him for us. 
He took our place in our deserved punishment. He was our substitute. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was equipped to to be the glorious victor and the conquering king. And here we garner a practical lesson. If Christ needed to be equipped with the Holy Spirit to fulfill the Father's purpose, so so must we. It's sad that some deny the sacraments or consider them to be optional or indifferent. But if our Lord did not think so, then neither should we. If we wish to be strengthened, if we wish to be made obedient unto salvation and declared children of God, then we must be equipped with the Holy Spirit. That is the sign of the sacrament. The Holy Spirit is working through this means. So we must make, or we must take every effort to be obedient that we too might be equipped with the Holy Spirit to fulfill the purpose for which God has anointed us. Now notice how Matthew calls our attention to this word behold. And I won't spend much time here. I mentioned to it earlier. We are to listen up, Matthew is saying. Pay attention. God is anointing and He is announcing the Savior of the world. He is prefiguring His work and reward. And He's doing it all by Himself. God the Son is baptized. God the Holy Spirit descends like a dove to rest upon the Son. And God the Father speaks from heaven. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Jerome, the early church father, describes it this way. The mystery of the Trinity, he says, is revealed in baptism. There's great symbolism and profound meaning here in this gospel passage of Christ's baptism. Notice how the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. Like a dove, we find that the Spirit of God was hovering in the waters in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And so here we see that the Spirit of God Working in creation, just as it was in the beginning, so it is in the fullness of time. Christ is creating anew through the power of the Holy Spirit. But also consider how the word dove in Hebrew is the word that means Jonah. Do you remember him? He's the prophet in the Old Testament who preached repentance. So here we see that it is the power of the Holy Spirit who enables us to turn away from the world and the devil and the flesh and to turn to Christ, our Savior and our Lord. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that gives us the courage and the commitment to preach repentance in word and deed. And also remember that it was the dove, it was through the dove that Noah received the sign of salvation. And so here we find that it will be the fruit of the Holy Spirit that will be for us a sign of 
salvation, love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, kindness, self-control, gentleness, goodness. And so I ask, are we living with the fruit of the spirits? Fruit of the Spirit? Do they describe your life? Let them be signs that will assure your heart of your salvation. There's great meaning in these signs that can give us courage and can strengthen our resolve to all the more live on mission and with purpose and to share and to show this salvation. Now notice the Father's voice from heaven. And notice His words for which He says, God is no longer silent. Just as He spoke in creation, He speaks to His beloved Son who will make all things new. I find it interesting that the only other time that we read of a voice from heaven speaking before this event is in the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And this is no coincidence that God speaking both is beginning the giving of the law and God speaking is beginning the giving of the gospel ministry. You see, the Word of God will always give witness to the Son. And this is the Word of God in the flesh. And we have the Word of God written, recorded, so that we might hear the Word of God. So let us study these holy scriptures so that we might give witness to this Son. Let us use them in our time of prayer. Let us draw upon them when we're faced with difficulty and challenges. If we wish to know the Father, then we must know the Son. As Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God. So listen to the words for which the Father says. He says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. How comforting are these words. God the Father announces that His Son is those familiar words that we hear in our Eucharistic liturgy. The one oblation of Himself once offered. The full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice. Oblation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Yes, both God's wrath and His Spirit rested on Christ. Why? So that He could be, as Paul writes, the just and the justifier. This is the Messianic King who is victorious. This is the prophet who speaks glorious words that foretells His wonder and work. This is the great high priest who is both mediator and substitute. And this is the beloved Son of God who is the pleasure of God the Father. Yes, He is both the beloved Son and the suffering servant who is equipped by the Holy Spirit 
and marked with the pleasure of God the Father for us. So may we rest in the God who works for us. Amen.